So Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, we'll be reading through verse 29. Well, please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, when you're reading through the book of Genesis, this section, this section between Noah and the great patriarchs, is a section that's very easy to skim over. Uh, This is a section that ordinarily doesn't get a lot of attention. Indeed, when you think about the book of Genesis, you probably think about creation. Uh, You think about the origins of sin. So Genesis chapter 3, you might think of Noah and the flood. You probably think of the narratives and stories that surround Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You may even think of the story of Joseph and the great reversal it is. But you probably don't think of this section, and you probably don't think of this passage in particular. Indeed, this passage probably strikes most of us as being a bit odd, perplexing, and maybe even a little inappropriate. However, my goal this morning is to help you see that this passage is actually a very important passage for our faith and our nourishment and growth and grace. In this passage, we are essentially being given a glimpse in the rearview mirror. Uh, We should hear an echo of Genesis chapter 3.15 in this passage. This passage also gives us a glimpse in in the telescope, as it were. It, It foreshadows future events in redemptive history. Thus, this passage really is a microcosm of the central message of Scripture, a message that's found from Genesis through Revelation. 
This passage is a microcosm of the central message of Scripture, a message found throughout the entirety of Scripture, Genesis through Revelation. Or to put it another way, this, this passage is the Bible in 12 verses. It's the Bible summarized in 12 verses. So what I would like us to do this morning is to see how this passage points us backward, how it gives us a glimpse in the rearview mirror. Uh, we will consider how this passage points us forward to future events in redemptive history as we consider the Bible, really the, uh, the central message of the Bible in 12 verses. Well, you may recall in uh, the previous two weeks, we have... Uh, considered this great flood. God sent this great flood, this watery judgment upon all of creation because of the depravity of mankind. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, as he thinks about world history, he sees the flood as being a great divider in world history. Peter sees the world before the flood as the world that then was and the world after the flood as the world that now is. And so we should, see, we should see some parallels between the opening chapters of Genesis and Genesis 8 and 9. Because in Genesis 8 and 9, God is essentially restarting with creation after this great flood. Uh, thus, we should see similarities between the beginning of the world that then was and the beginning of the world that now is. Well, in this passage, we again encounter Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we also hear that Noah, Noah was a worker of the soil. Noah was a worker of the soil. You may remember last week, God told Noah, and by extension, all mankind, that he is giving to them plants and animals for food. Well, in the ancient world, plants and animals didn't automatically turn into a hot meal in one's dinner plate. A man had to do a lot of work as farmers, hunters, and gatherers in order to turn plants and animals into consumable food, into hot meals. And so Noah seems to be responding to that commission in the Noahic covenant to work, to work and provide for the growing needs of civilization. Noah is a worker of the ground. Noah plants vineyards. Noah makes wine. Well, one day, we hear in this passage, Noah drank a little too much of his wine, and he passed out drunk and naked in his tent. Now, being naked and being drunk and naked is a shameful state to be in. It's a vulnerable state to be in. Well, it's in this state that we hear Noah's youngest son, Ham. Ham comes into Noah's tent and looks upon the nakedness of his father. But doesn't help his father, but just turns around, leaves, and tells his brothers. Publicizes this sin, the shame of Noah. This behavior likely indicates that Ham was seeking to magnify the shameful nakedness of his father, seeking to expose, seeking to almost mock his father in this state. We know from a Ugaritic epic, which is a story from a similar time period in the ancient Near East, that it was expected that sons 
were to help come to the aid of and respect their fathers if they ever became drunk. And so at this time period, this was expected conduct. You were to help your father if he ever found himself in this shameful state. Ham doesn't do this. Rather, he really does the opposite. He doesn't honor and respect his father. He dishonors and disrespects his father in this state of vulnerability. Well, Ham tells his two brothers, Shem and Japheth, about their father. And what do Shem and Japheth do? Well, Shem and Japheth do the opposite. They go into Noah's tent backwards. Why? So that they would not gaze upon the shameful nakedness of their father. And as they go into Noah's tent backwards, they bring a garment covering the shame and nakedness of Noah. They honor and respect their father in his sin and in his shame. Well, Noah awakes and he somehow finds out what happened to him in his drunken stupor and he curses, curses not specifically Ham, but he curses the son of Ham. And who is that? That's Canaan. He curses Ham's youngest son, Canaan. He tells Canaan that Canaan will forever be a servant of servants to his two brothers, Ham, or Shem and Japheth. And then Noah also blesses Shem and blesses Japheth. Well, as I mentioned earlier, this passage and this narrative gives us a glimpse in the rearview mirror. It, it should point us backward to Genesis chapter 3.15. We should hear an echo of that verse here in this passage. Well, how so? How does this passage point us backward, backward to Genesis 3.15? Well, Remember Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 comes in that curse section of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have sinned and God comes both in judgment and in grace. And in verse 3.15, or verse 15 of Genesis 3, God is cursing the serpent. And embedded in these curses are also promises of grace. And so God tells the serpent he says that he is placing or will place enmity between the serpent and between the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And then he says, he, a singular male offspring of the woman, he will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. So here in verse 15, God is essentially making two promises. Two promises that we see repeated here in this passage in Genesis 9. So first, uh, God is making this promise of enmity. He's promising to place enmity and strife. Again, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, he's placing enmity and strife between the woman and the serpent. Again, what were Adam and Eve doing in their sin? Well, they were breaking covenant with God and striking a deal with the devil. God then graciously responds by promising to break up that covenant, break up that relationship that Eve struck with that ancient serpent. But not only that, God is also promising to place division and strife and conflict and enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the devil or the serpent. 
The offspring of the serpent aren't demons. They are the reprobate, unbelievers, who descend from Adam and Eve. Again, remember, Seth and Cain both came from Adam and Eve. That is to say, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent came from the same parents. God is placing enmity, strife, conflict between the woman and the serpent, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. Now, in Genesis 9, remember, all there is is Noah's family. God just destroyed the entire earth, all mankind except Noah and his family. God here in Genesis 9 is starting over with creation. And so in Noah's family, who is the member of the seed of the woman and who are members of the seed of the serpent? To answer that question, we should also ask another question. Who, who is imaging God here and who is imaging the serpent? The answer to that question will probably give us the answer to the first question. Who is imaging the devil? Who is imaging the serpent? And who is imaging God? That will tell us who, who the members of the seed of the woman are and who the members of the seed of the serpent are. Well, again, uh, let's go back to Genesis 3 for a moment. What happens to Adam and Eve after they sin? Well, they are naked and ashamed. For the first time, they are filled with shame because of their nakedness. When we were in Genesis 3, I, I, I noted that shameful nakedness was a legal symbol for divorce. In the ancient world, shameful nakedness was the legal symbol for divorce. And therefore, in Genesis 3, we are witnessing the first divorce in human history. Now, who, who's responsible for this shameful nakedness of our first parents? Well, of course, our first parents are. They're the ones who sin. They're responsible for their own actions. However, the serpent is also a contributing factor. <laughs> His main goal in Genesis 3 was to bring about this shameful nakedness in our first parents. Now, how does God respond to the shameful nakedness of Adam and Eve? Well, at the very end of Genesis 3, God graciously comes to Adam and Eve and he clothes their nakedness and by extension, their sin, their guilt, and their shame with garments, garments from dead animals. Uh, foreshadowing how the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, would, will clothe us and our shame and our guilt and our sin through his blood and righteousness. Okay, have that in mind as we come now to Genesis 9. Who is imaging the serpent and who is imaging God among Noah's children? Well, Ham seems to be imaging the serpent. He comes and seeks to magnify the shameful nakedness of his father. He doesn't cover the nakedness of his father. He magnifies, exposes the shameful nakedness of Noah and thus is imaging, mirroring the likeness of that ancient serpent. Shem and Japheth, they do the opposite. They cover the shame, the nakedness, the sin of Noah with a garment and thus they reflect the image of God specifically the character of God that we witness at the end of Genesis chapter 3. And so this indicates to us that Shem specifically 
is the member of the seed of the woman. And Ham and his son Canaan then, they are members of the seed of the serpent. And furthermore, notice how God is placing enmity within the family of Noah here between these two brothers and their descendants. What's the curse that God places upon Canaan, the son of Ham? He tells Canaan that Canaan will forever be a servant of servants to his two brothers, to Shem and Japheth. This is enmity, right? Canaan will forever be a servant subjugated below Shem and Japheth. God is telling us that that promise, that first promise of Genesis 3.15, in which there will be enmity, strife, and conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of uh, the serpent, that promise is reiterated. It's reissued. It's restated here in Genesis 9. There will continue to be conflict between the church and the world, between the covenant community and those outside the covenant community. God is restating this promise for the world that now is. Another interesting point to reflect upon is uh, if you read Genesis 10, Genesis 10 is the, the table of nations, so the descendants of the sons of Noah. And when you look at the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Ham contain Israel's most bitter enemies, Philistia, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. Again, God is placing enmity, not just between uh, Canaan and Shem, but the descendants of such. The descendants of Ham and Shem, uh, Shem and Canaan. Well, the second promise, the second promise of Genesis 3.15 is that the singular male offspring of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. That promise is also reissued here in Genesis 9. Again, the curse that God gives to Canaan is that Canaan will forever be a servant of servants to Shem, to his two brothers. Now, where does Christ come from? Where does Christ come from? Well, Christ comes from the line of Shem. Thus, Shem's greatest son is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's being promised here is that Shem's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be exalted, will triumph over Canaan and all that Canaan represents, Babylon and the father of Canaan, namely the devil himself. God here again is promising that he will bring about this righteous seed of the woman who will be victorious over the enemies of God. And so, this passage is giving us a glimpse in the rearview mirror. We should hear an echo of Genesis 3.15 ringing in our ears as we read this passage. God is telling us that in the world that now is, life after the flood still will contain conflict and strife and enmity between believer and unbeliever, church and world. God is telling us here that he will continue to fulfill his gospel promises. And in, in the historical context, the effect that this passage is meant to have is, is to assure us that even though God destroyed the world and creation through a flood, we shouldn't think 
that God's purposes have failed, as if now his plans are changing because he sent this worldwide flood as is restarting with creation. No, God's plans and his purposes remain constant. He is still going to fulfill what he promised in Genesis 3.15. He is still going to redeem his people through this righteous seed of the woman, which will now come through the line of Shem. And this is an important point for us to reflect upon. Our world looks very different than the world of Genesis 9, but yet God's purposes remain constant. The promises that we see here, the promises that we witness in Genesis 3.15 are still in effect today. There is still conflict between the church and the world, and this is according to God's good design. God still remains faithful to his gospel promises. No matter how you may feel, no matter what your experience may indicate about your spiritual life, no matter what your conscience may be accusing you of, God's gospel promises remain constant. No matter what we witness in our world, no matter how much our world changes, God's plans remain the same. I also mentioned that this passage uh, causes us to look forward. Uh, This passage is a prophecy. It's a prophecy. And as a prophecy, it has multiple levels of fulfillment. This passage as a prophecy has multiple levels of fulfillment. And so uh, one way you can think of this passage is as a skipping stone. So boys and girls, you may have have skipped a a stone before on a river or on a lake or some other body of water. And when you skip a stone, you... Uh, you try to find a flat stone and, and, and you want that stone to skip as many times as possible. Well, think of Genesis 9 as a skipping stone and the rest of Scripture as the body of water. We see the skipping stone of Genesis 9, um, it has m- multiple landing spots throughout Scripture, multiple uh, levels of fulfillment. And uh, right now we're going to consider four of those fulfillments, four of those landing spots. And the first three are all united under this theme of Christ's conquest over his enemies. So Shem. Again, Shem is one of Noah's sons. And Shem, uh, who is he? Well, he is the great, 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 great grandfather of Terah. Terah fathers Abram. Abram fathers Isaac. Isaac fathers Jacob. And Jacob is renamed into Israel. And eventually Israel dwells in what land? The land of Canaan. In the book of Joshua, we learn that God commissions Joshua to cause Israel not only to dwell in the land of Canaan, but to possess the land of Canaan. Meaning Joshua is to lead this great conquest towards the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. He is to wipe out all of the Canaanites and devote them to complete destruction. Again, remember Genesis 9. Canaan will forever be a servant to the descendants of Shem. And therefore we see Joshua as a partial fulfillment of what we read here in Genesis 9. The skipping stone of Genesis 9 finds its first landing spot in the book of Joshua. As Joshua leads his great conquest over the enemies of God, over the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham. Well, fast forward to the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, 
Paul's reflecting upon the significance of the death of Christ. What did Christ accomplish when he died on the cross? That's a great question to ask. Listen to what Paul says in response to that question. He says that when Christ died, when he was nailed to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. When Christ died, he led a conquest over all of his enemies. Christ on the cross is Christ, the warrior, defeating that ancient serpent. Again, remember Genesis 9 that Canaan and all of his descendants will be a servant of servants to Shem. Shem's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, triumphed over Canaan and all that Canaan represented, including his father, the devil, on the cross. And therefore, the second landing spot of the skipping stone of Genesis 9 lands in Colossians chapter 2, where we see Christ's conquest over all of his enemies, beginning at the cross. We'll fast forward even more. In Revelation 18, right at the end of the Bible, uh, we encounter Babylon. Babylon is a descendant of Ham. And throughout Scripture, Babylon is a symbol of God's enemies, a symbol of the world, a symbol of all that which is ungodly. And when Christ returns, these are the words, these are the words that we will hear. And we see this in in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That is what we're going to hear when Christ splits the clouds and comes in judgment on the last day as our warrior. He is going to uh, devote to complete destruction Babylon and all that Babylon represents. Christ on the last day is going to take God's bow. God's bow, which by virtue of the Noahic covenant is pointed away from creation. Well, Christ on the last day is going to take that bow and redirect it and point it at Babylon and utterly destroy that wicked city. And so we should see the skipping stone of Genesis 9 also landing in Revelation 18. Canaan and Babylon will forever be a servant of servants to Shem, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so whether you're in Genesis 9, whether you're in Joshua, whether you're in Colossians 2, whether you're in Revelation 18, all of these passages assure us that Christ is and will be victorious, that he is our conquering king. This is a point that at times can be hard for us to really believe. When we look out with our eyes and our experience, it doesn't always seem as if Christ is winning, as if he is our seated victorious king ruling over all things. However, Paul tells us that we are a people who walk not by sight, but by faith. We do not believe the promises of God insofar as we can validate those promises with our eyes and our experience. No, we believe the promises of God by faith alone. We believe the promises of God even when we can't validate their truthfulness in our experience. We believe the promises of God even when our experience seems to contradict those promises in Scripture. We walk by faith and not by sight. And thus by faith we rest, we believe, and we're assured that Christ is our seated and victorious king. That he will utterly destroy Babylon on that last day. 
Even though, even though there remains conflict in this age between the church and the world. Well, again, in Genesis chapter 9, we also read that God blesses Shem and Japheth. And one of the blessings that God gives to these two brothers is that the tents of Shem will expand so that Japheth can dwell therein. The tents of Shem will expand so that the, uh, uh, Japheth and his descendants can dwell therein. Now, who are the descendants of Japheth? Well, in chapter 10, verse 5, we learn that the descendants of, of, of Japheth include the coastland people. The coastland people. And the prophets, we oftentimes hear that it's the coastland people for whom the gospel is going to reach in the messianic age. The coastland people are a metaphor for the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations. Indeed, in Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3, Isaiah tells us that the tents of Israel will expand in the future days so that the nations, the coastlands, can be gathered in. And therefore, these blessings, these blessings um, given to Shem and Japheth point us forward to the new covenant when the Gentile nations will be grafted into the covenant community. When the tents of Shem will expand so that the nations can be brought in. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, the Apostle Paul tells us that uh, he's speaking to Gentile Christians. And he says, you who were once far off, you who were once strangers and aliens have been brought near, have been made fellow citizens with the saints and fellow members of the household of God. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that now in the new covenant, the tents of Shem have expanded so that the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. They now have a place in the household of God. Thus, we should see the skipping stone of Genesis 9 also landing here in the new covenant as the Gentiles are being grafted in to the covenant community. And so this Advent season, what are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? We're not just celebrating Jesus Christ in a trite, sentimental way. We're celebrating what Jesus Christ came into this world to accomplish. Jesus Christ came into this world as our conquering warrior to defeat all his and our enemies. But Jesus Christ also came into this world to expand the tents of Shem so that Gentile sinners, so that descendants of Japheth, so that you and I can have a place in the household of God. This is God's mission in the world. We don't need to go to the Great Commission only to find God's mission in the world. We find God's mission in the world here in Genesis chapter 9. Christ is our conquering warrior. Christ promises to expand the tents of Shem. Christ promises to save the coastlands, the descendants of Japheth. This is God's mission in our world today. How does God accomplish these objectives? Well, he accomplishes these objectives through his word and spirit. Our Heidelberg Catechism puts it wonderfully as it's explaining the, the meaning of, of, of the phrase Holy Catholic Church in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, catechism says that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, gathers, defends, and preserves a chosen communion in the unity of true faith. How? How does our God accomplish these objectives? 
Well, he accomplishes these, object, these objectives through his word and spirit. And this is what we, we're seeking to be as a reformed confessional church. We're seeking to emphasize the ministry of the word and allow God's word to do what God promises to do. <laughs> to expand the tents of Shem. To save the descendants of Japheth. To build a multicultural, generational covenant community. So as you think about people in your life, uh, many of you probably will uh, be spending time with um, neighbors, family members, extended family members this holiday season. As you, as you think about your own family, and maybe you have people in your uh, circle of influence who are straying from the Lord who don't know the Lord. Do you have any hope that they will be gathered into the body of Christ? Well, you should, because Christ is still active through his word and spirit. As you think about you and your, your family, uh, living in this present evil age with all of its temptations and trappings, do you have any hope that you will be preserved? Well, you should, because Christ is still active through the ministry of his word and spirit. In a few moments, we will once again come to the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we take, we eat, we remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed so that the tents of Shem may be expanded, so that you and I may dwell therein. Let us pray.